everyone, this is Juliet, your co-host of the Green Tea Podcast, and welcome to episode three. Today we're going to be talking about environmental racism and urban planning. It's an alternative spring break trip that um, Lamona and Samira have led this past spring break. And uh, so we have Lamona and Samira today. Um, hi, and hi, uh, hi. it's good to have you. Um, if you could quickly just introduce yourself to everyone on the podcast who might be listening in, that'd be great. Just mm-hmm. your sure. name, yeah. your school year, what you major in, and just, mm-hmm. yeah, anything else. Yeah. Uh, I'm cool. Samira Iqbal. I am a rising senior, current junior. Um, she, they pronouns. I'm from New York. Um, and part of why I wanted to lead this trip was because I care uh, a lot about like environmental racism and public policy issues, specifically in New York. Hi, um, my name is Lamona. I am also almost a senior. Um, I use she for hers pronouns, and I am an EOS major, um, and also a math major. Um, and the reason why I want to lead this trip also has to do with, you know, I'm, I have this interest in um, climate change and um, I don't feel like um, the science classes I took at Bowdoin has have addressed the kind of um, social outcomes of climate change so I sort of want to go out there and see mm-hmm. yeah. awesome so I guess you know this is a sustainability podcast and what you explored on your ASB trip uh, was really sustainable, sustainability oriented. It was, you know, addressing environmental racism, right? So can you just quickly uh, explain for uh, our listeners what your background to sustainability is? Or a better, maybe a better question is, um, why are you interested in sustainability or why is it important to you? Yeah, um, I think um, I don't have a lot of background in sustainability. I think I have curiosity in it I Mm. want to understand and I'm still in the process of understanding what people mean by living sustainably I think um, when we think about nature we have very different standards for what is what is sustainable what is something that we want to look at Mm. and for some people it's you know it's having a um, very nice looking neighborhood having a tree that grows right outside of their um, house in their backyard. And for some other people, it's um, it's not necessarily how good things look. It's about, you know, if they can get access to water, um, if, you know, these things are not, or if it is inducing health concerns for them. And to some degree, the kind of differences in people's evaluation of sustainability or um, nature has to do with class and race, mm-hmm. um, which is what we explored on the trip. Yeah, um, a little similarly, I didn't come at it from the trip from like your typical s- sort of perspective on sustainability, which I like relate to like um, sort of recycling and composting and like that sort of thing. I I think a lot of times in the city you have a limitation on what you can and cannot feasibly do just literally because there's you have less space but also yeah. I think like from a class perspective mm-hmm. I, I think a lot about sort of like what food is accessible 
mm-hmm. and is how that relates to whether or not it's sustainable. And I think, uh, so like I think about it sustainability in terms of like practices, in terms of like access um, to, uh, and then Ramona touched on this as well about like where are you getting your food? Is it sustainable? Like um, in terms of like social programming or like how you have access to like greenery, how, mm-hmm. how sustainable are those habits and how sustainable is it like for the city to like maintain a park in this mm-hmm. area that's like it's not um, natural yeah. to have that there. That's awesome. Wow. I, mean, I feel like I'm already gleaning some things <laughs> you guys have, like, observed and talked about on your trip. Um, I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about, then, what your alternative spring break trip was? Um, you know, what was the focus of it? It was in New York, right? Um, so what were some of the activities that you guys did, and how did you engage with the community? Um, so we wanted to sort of have m- multiple perspectives on what it was like to live in New York and what it meant um, to be sort of healthy and have access to all of these, to like the resources that you need. So like sometimes we leaned more into like the history and sort of like of like redlining and like how did certain neighborhoods and infrastructures, Mm -hmm. uh, how were they developed and why and sort of like who was affected by them. Um, And then we also touched on like local activists who are talking about rehabilitating like the Bronx River and sort of like what that meant for the relationship the people in the Bronx had with their natural resources mm-hmm. for um, sort of recycling, composting, and energy saving in apartment complexes and sort of how you could enact those changes when like you're in an apartment and you can't necessarily like compost or like Mm -hmm. it's not entirely up to you on whether or not you're gonna have um what are those things they put on uh they're put on roofs and they collect sunlight solar panels solar panels oh yes (laughs) (laughs) it's not entirely up to you and so Mm -hmm. like how do you manage those relationships um, Mm -hmm. within like your goals yeah, I think one of also a highlight for me was that we went to visit the Queens Climate Project. It's grassroots community organization, and um, the process of getting to know them was really fascinating for us. Like both of us met with them on Zoom, and all of their board members—I don't know if they're board members, but like, but like active members, yeah. right? Um, all of them had day jobs, and this is just oh. what they do on the side, and they're like meeting with us. All of them showed up. Yeah, wow. they brought their kids. On, yeah. on the actual day that on the we actual day, there. it was like six p.m. because everyone needs to come home first. Yeah, and they brought their kids. Um, they toured us. They gave us a tour around their neighborhood and talked and talked about you know how COVID has changed reshaped the community there Mm -hmm. they've blocked these parallel roads that cuts across the neighborhood and then turned it entirely into like playing grounds for kids um and how that you know just create a sense of community for them and Mm -hmm. they just don't want it to go away anymore um and also seeing the kids were only like younger than us yeah they were middle schoolers middle schoolers they're just so passionate about climate change. Yeah. They're so passionate mm. about composting. Mm. 
and building this garden, painting this mural and sending this message and talking to people. I mean, like, I just think I wish I were like that. <laughs> and <laughs> they, like, was that they also like had really strong like civic education as well. Because no. they were, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you and I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but they were more familiar with the current climate change legislation up in Albany than I was. Wow. Um, and they were like, yeah, so there's X, Y, and Z person. And like they knew the players of wow. like the game, so to speak. And I was talking about Oh my god. Mm. Um, but I think it was really nice to see sort of the the politics and like the policy making going hand in hand with like the grass work that's mm. grassroots sort of like work of Yeah, it. you could see how local it was and how everyone was being engaged in yeah. in that work. That's yeah. awesome. I think it set a really good example for like yeah. what potential avenues for us to later engage in activism could look like. Mm-hmm. Like when people go back to home or when they resettle into a city, like these are things they could get involved in. Mm-hmm. So just a quick question for it, that community that you spoke to. Can you tell us a little bit more about, um, you said it was like an organization, right? Mm-hmm. So what is the mission or the goal, overall goal of that um, organization? And like, tell me more about the community. You guys, mm-hmm. you guys talk a lot about like, Uh, race and class and Mm -hmm. how that factors into how you know environmentalism Mm -hmm. plays out Uh, what was it what were the demographics like for this organization and this community how did this did that play out in any way well i i was gonna say surprisingly but actually not surprisingly the most of the members are white people Mm -hmm. in in the group and um, the reason why it's not surprising is um, those are the people who oftentimes will have time for it um they are not you know totally i guess just been busy with keeping up with life Mm -hmm. um they have extra time to fight for a good cause that they believe in um i think their mission was to sort of like connect people and um they do this happy hour program um that they just get people together and then they talk about what has happened um, in terms of po- climate policies that, you know, could affect them. And then they do phone banking. Sorry, I don't mean to. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Of... yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's also about fun. Yeah. Um, mm. And then they also create opportunities for kids. Um, they ran this um, veggie garden. Yeah, and they veggie nuggets. Yeah, it's a really good name. And... Um, yeah, they're working on, they turned the side of the bridge into a small garden. Wow. Um, and they're going to paint a mural on the side of the bridge that sends out some message. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have anything to add? Like, there was this sort of raised, so the area that we were in was Jackson Heights, which is where I'm from. Mm, um, I see. And, so you're pretty familiar with the area. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I honestly, like, I had very little knowledge about this group's work beforehand, mm-hmm. which I think it has in some interesting implications for uh, group outreach, which I think is hard, honestly, um, in that, like, because it's an urban but also residential environment. Um, but yeah, the bridge she's talking about is this raised highway that cuts through um, Queens. And that has some implications in terms of, like, environmental racism and, like, why is that bridge there versus 
and like bringing in a lot of like cars and like bad air versus mm. in Manhattan where majority of it is at least at, at the sides. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it was an interesting group to talk to because I think like uh, they do a lot of hard work and they're very dedicated, mm. but also like realistically they have time that a lot of people in the neighborhood don't because, mm-hmm. or at least they're aware of these issues in a way that people in the neighborhood can't afford to have that awareness. Yeah. Just because it's primarily an immigrant neighborhood, primarily working class. Mm-hmm. Like, people like my parents and my grandparents who are living here are not really concerned with the environment when they're concerned about, like, making rent and, like, not getting COVID. Because yeah. a lot of them didn't have the... Um, ability to work from home mm-hmm. and so a lot of it it's just like a different kind of concern yeah um so like managing it, it it's interesting to sort of like manage that dynamic I mm. think um because how can you care about the environment when you have to make rent yes mm. yeah um, wow that yeah. is that's Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a lot of information. Yeah, it's yeah. the trip that we learned. So yeah. in a way, you need to have the means and the leisure to be able to inform yourself on these topics and and to, you know, mm-hmm. you know, have the the means to be able to mm-hmm. like invest in your community and you know, I mean, that's kind of like a hard message to to take in. Like, what do you think, is there any hope, you think, for all the others um, who really are, like, just struggling to get by? What can they do? Or, yeah, have you guys kind of explored that tension a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, it's not exclusively class. There are a lot of activists who are working class who, Mm -hmm. like, are very much concerned with, like, making rent, but then also, like, are very aware of, like, what... The, the environmental and, like, racist racism problems in their area, specifically, like, if we were to look in Red Hook, for example. So it's not, like, it's not exclusively classed. I just think th- it's very interesting to see how, like, the dynamics, like, the focuses of different activists when they are people of color or when they're coming from underprivileged posi- um, communities sort of reflects, I think, the dynamic between people who are environmentalist and people who have more focus on anti-racism and mm. anti in focus on environmental racism specifically. Because mm-hmm. there's this dynamic historically where environmentalists are very white um, and they're very classed because mm. it's this idea of like, white people, white masculinity, being able to go out into the forest and sort of reclaim something like that. Yeah. And that's sort of, like, how a lot of preservation efforts started. Um, But then you see anti-racism, and that was coined by, like, this black minister who was talking about racist public policy Mm -hmm. that ended up putting black neighborhoods in disinvestment zones and sacrifice zones Mm -hmm. where... Um, they just wouldn't have as good sanitation from the city. Or, like, they would be near, like, busing depots and sanitation depots and, like, all of these things that are really necessary for a city or a anywhere, honestly, but weren't didn't have the best effects on people who live there. Um, 
so and I think like you see that dynamic reflected um, in a lot of the activists. Yeah. Because in Red Hook, they they were more focused on anti um, environmental racism and public policy in that way, and like fighting off the negative effects of these sanitation depots and like actual pollution in the river in like the Gowanus. Whereas um, in my na- neighborhood, the activists were primarily focused on like energy conservation and composting and mm-hmm. stuff like that and legislation. Got it, got it. And you guys talk a little bit more about like um, how, you know, for some higher class, people who are from the upper class, they might, you know, have a view towards aesthetics. They want to live in a very nice middle class home with a nice tree. They want some shade and, uh, to, you know, maybe overlook like a nice view of whatever nature is out there or, or even like a nice view of the city. And that can sometimes be a nice justification for, oh, I love the environment, I want to create, um, you know, or I want to help, you know, create this, like, very nice space with parks and whatnot in my area, my local area, but uh, does that happen to come at a, at the, co- the cost for certain other people who, you know, are really struggling to get by with the necessities, like, you guys explore that tension, right? So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. I think the question is really on point. Um, we explored a lot of places um, on the trip that, you know, really highlighted the problem. And I really went into the trip without really thinking about that aspect. I just think, oh, these the site looked pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this city view. <laughs> but what is missing in the story is that by creating this beautification project or the city view, you're necessarily relocating some communities. Like we mm-hmm. go to, we went to the Central Park, we learned about the history in lots of the museums that we visited. Um, the Seneca Village used to be there, but because um, upper class um, populations want a green space in the middle of the city that would be a place where they can build build communities um they relocated the community that were living in there and mm-hmm. um we went to see the afrofuturism exhibit which you can talk more about um that you know really showed us what seneca village could look like if central park didn't exist and they still lasted their legacy um and we went to like highway parks um, and look at, you know, a lot, some of the nice looking places and how that affected um, communities. And when we're walking past by at night, I think pretty late, we realized that um, all the entries to the highway park were shut because they really don't want to um, have like home houseless people. Um, go wow. up there and, the and oh sorry Highline I kept saying Highway Highline um, <laughs> and yeah like all of that was to was to create this perfect view that you know it's it's good as the point of departure of even just you know like um, what they want to be proud of as a city like we have mm-hmm. all of these beautiful things that could attract mm-hmm. more population 
more rich people to come. Um, and yeah, we left one day um, during our trip to go and actually look at these places and we designed um, individual projects that each are participants group they take on and they do some research on the region and we went out there and really looked at what it looked like and the history behind it and it just blew my mind away that all these things these things behind the scenes there are so many more stories and narratives yeah. to it and a lot has happened even though it you know on the surface it, it looks really nice mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And like to speak more specifically um, to the Seneca Village, that was a historically black neighborhood in the middle of Central Park, right where the current, right near where the current reservoir was, and it was for free black Americans and like mm-hmm. before like the <clears throat> Civil War, and because they had difficulty finding housing um, and were discriminated against when they were in the rest of the city, Mm -hmm. they sort of found this refuge in the Mm -hmm. middle of Seneca Village because that was in the middle of Central Park, which was still undeveloped wooded area. Mm -hmm. And so even though it was really developed, like there were town, there were like houses, there were merchants, like it was a community. Mm -hmm. Um, It was referred to as a shantytown in the newspapers because people were driving up this fear and this idea of like a lack of civilization. Yeah. Um and that part and that idea is partially what enabled the city to like use eminent domain to mm-hmm. relocate everyone in Seneca Village because wow. they were like we want this land. Yeah. And that happened a couple times um until like eventually people were just pushed pushed out of the park wow. entirely. Um, yeah, and I think, like, you see that a lot, like, we visited Barnard, mm-hmm. and we saw this amazing redlining uh, exhibit in Barnard, it's still up, so if anyone wants to see it, you should just go on the website, email them, you can get a really quick tour, it's amazing. And this is not sponsored. It's not sponsored. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they had, like, this really interesting bit on how the college itself had used eminent domain and em- to cut down, like... Um, city housing and wow. well, previously city housing, but like city housing that was mostly for like working class mm-hmm. people because they're like, oh, we need the this area to expand the college. And mm-hmm. eminent domain is the right a city has to reclaim land for the public good. And so, how are we defining public good? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how historically it's been used for these very classist. Yes. Ideas mm. of mm. access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on the note of that, I think um, one of my takeaway from um, the red line, the right lining exhibit, was that I think Barnard was really cautious of their relationship with the communities around them, um, the city that they're in, um, and I think that's something that we could do better. Um, I, at least I haven't really seen anyone taking on the project of really looking at historically Bowdoin's relationship with the communities around here and how Mm -hmm. landscape changed over the course of the years. Mm -hmm. It's just a fascinating topic to think about and, and, and take on. Yeah. Yeah. This idea of, could it be that Bowdoin 
should be responsible for yeah. and look out for, you know, the natural um, natural land or nature that is around us, but also the communities and the neighbors around us, making sure that they aren't they are doing well and that we mm-hmm. aren't pushing them out just for mm-hmm. certain you know aesthetic or yeah you know quote-unquote better uses yeah that's a really good thought you guys that's great guys <laughs> um uh, you guys talk a little bit more about like um this idea of you know using borders or like public policy to kind of push people out or reinforce certain stereotypes or uh you know mm. unjust i guess practices mm. um so can you guys talk a little bit about any any of the activities you guys did on your on your break about that concern say like redlining or re- urban renewal pro- projects you did talk a little bit about the eminent domain but is there anything else that comes to mind um yeah actually the we stopped by the bronx river alliance and so there's this river that runs through the bronx yes um (laughs) and they were working on cleaning it up and so we went and we did some volunteer work with them just cleaning up that neighborhood um and we had some really interesting conversations about how cleaning up that river would attract investors and like real estate brokers Mm -hmm. to the area around the river because Mm -hmm. oh it's so nice it's so accessible like it's a very marketable um commodity to have when you're trying to sell something um but by necessity that would involve pushing out the people who already live there and it would also raise rent of the people who are living there yeah Mm -hmm. um and like really just start like a process of gentrification so we talked about that in terms of like how public policy in terms of like conservation efforts can sort of lead into gentrification but also i think more broadly how the lack of public policy like lack of sanitation and a a lack of housing that leads to overcrowded that leads to like slum situations where buildings are overcrowded and like they're not being expected properly and like they're like the area is a little dirty because sanitation is not coming as often as we should mm-hmm. all of that leads to a reputation or like just the fact that we've got two major highways running through the bronx mm-hmm. and the asthma rate is in new york is highest in the bronx um it's called um asthma high alley actually because so many people have asthma um wow. And so you have all of these negative effects of public Mm -hmm. policy where, like, you sort of have these neighborhoods known to be in slums Mm -hmm. or, like, you have, like, bad schooling because everything's overcrowded and underfunded or everyone has asthma or is overweight and struggling with health issues because they don't have access to good food. And those are all public policy issues, but they're blamed on the character of the neighborhood. Yes. So instead of it being a public policy issue, mm-hmm. it's that poor black and brown people don't know how to take care of themselves, don't yeah. know, don't have any respect for where they live themselves and other people, mm-hmm. and therefore that's why everyone in the Bronx is struggling, which mm-hmm. like is this generalization, but it is a very true narrative that exists mm-hmm. when we're talking about sort of public policy initiatives and programming initiatives 
and it adversely affects what actually gets passed. Yeah. Because everyone is functioning under these misconceptions about who deserves what. Yes. Wow. So can you talk a little bit about if you guys have explored this policy efforts that can be put into place to say mitigate these effects have you guys explored like on the policy end how do we reclaim justice for people like people who live in who lived in Seneca village for example or these people who have who, who are living in the Bronx or are are people who have been relocated because of these um, other you know renewable projects I think I don't know how um, optimistic I am on that realm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for that to happen, the majority of the population need to recognize the historical injustices that um, marginalized groups have experienced, and they have to have the willingness to give up what they have right now um, to compensate a, a historically marginalized yeah. group, which. I don't know how far we are on that process. Yeah. Um, it's it's a lot to ask people to. It, it can appear as if it's a lot to give up, right? Um, or for people to give up, you know, what they have for these people, especially if there is this running narrative that's going on about who they are and what they deserve. Right. That's tough. Yeah. Like I think, just the willingness to do it. I don't know what it takes because mm-hmm. if someone just don't want to change their mind, I don't. I don't know how much I can do to create a change. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You guys talked a little bit about the uh, the organization that you visited uh, with like the children mm. in the beginning of this podcast. Um, does that sort of like civic engagement and like the, the that you saw in that community maybe give you some ideas for maybe how we can address this? Mm. I mean, I think what I find very unique about that group is that they were very aware of, like, a local issue and then also what was going on in the state level. And so I think that might be a potential way for, like, students who went on the trip and myself and Lamona to think about when we move out and, Mm -hmm. like, how to engage in our community. Yes. And And, like, I don't think that necessarily will solve the problem, but I definitely think having a stronger sense of community that's mm-hmm. invested in like some idea of justice it it does do work towards changing people's attitudes mm-hmm. and like perceptions of what's yeah. going on so i think you're very right in that sense because if we were able to get people to get <laughs> understand that like it's not a neighborhood issue it's a systemic issue mm-hmm. then we could get a little closer to understanding okay so what solutions would potentially work mm-hmm. um or like even be willing to ans- ask that question yeah mm-hmm. i think well this is not an advertisement for the asb program but <laughs> <laughs> i do think it's such a great opportunity for both of us including our um participants yeah yeah like we didn't just really talk about an issue on the surface we actually go out there and see it i think Mm. it's so important and um i think it it has been a very good use of my energy as well like instead of touching a lot of people's lives just by just a little bit Mm -hmm. we chose to you know 
engage with a group of 10 people and really plant a seed um, before they they leave Bowdoin and do work elsewhere. Yeah. Um, the, the kind of civic engagement work and service work, learning work, um, I feel like I, I, can, I can say that I think all of, all of us can walk out of this trip, you know, looking at a place a little differently than we did last time. Mm-hmm. And this is powerful. If we can create more opportunities like this, if more people can lead ASB <laughs> trips. Yes. And go on them. And, and go, on, go them. on them. Yeah. Yes. Like, if you think about our group, our group is almost entirely people of color. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not representative. It's not, it's not reflective of Bowdoin's demographic at all. No, like, no. I think more people could, you know, put themselves out there and willing to look at new different perspectives mm-hmm. um, and learn about it. It's, yeah. it's I mean, powerful. I'm really grateful for everyone who came on our trip. They all had such amazing contributions. Mm-hmm. And they were even if they weren't coming at it from like my background, either being from New York, being from the city, or like having this interest in public policy, they it was so that almost made it better. Because it meant that, like, I could talk to Rania and sort of think about how redlining and, like, neighborhood makeup affects education. Or we could compare and contrast, like, Mm. the U.S. and, like, other countries and Mm -hmm. other cities and sort Mm -hmm. of in terms of urbanization and modernization. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. Um, But I also think, and the McKean Center is aware of this, that, like, a lot of the people who like, would disagree or, like, would hold the opinions would be more likely to have, um, just, like, not necessarily a disagreement, but, like, maybe an apathy is a better word, um, because everyone who came on the trip sort of had an interest on the trip, Mm -hmm. and so that's already getting at people who sort of, to some level, agree with you, Mm -hmm. and, like, you're not really changing their minds a lot. You're just diving into like this incredible experience where you learn a lot. Yeah. But in terms of changing people's minds and the way that they think about cities, that like is harder to do when the group who's applying is self-selecting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's yeah. very true. I think that our group is a very diverse certainly group and what's so nice about it is you know on the trip at the end of the day we all can come back together and really just learn from each other um we each have a really smart brain you know taking in information throughout the day and and Mm -hmm. and making connections with our life and at the end of the day we can all sit together and really talk about what has been a light bulb moment for me mm-hmm. and spark more conversations. Um, that's really a nice part of it. That's awesome. Yeah. And for everyone listening to this podcast and for myself and everyone else you're going to be talking to or maybe maybe you have talking to, uh, talked to after you came back from this trip, we're also, you know, enlightened by all the things you have to share too. So, <laughs> like, I, I think that the ASB trip that you went on really is so so important and so powerful yeah okay so maybe you know a couple more questions right before we wrap up first one is uh what is like a 
fun memory or an activity that you did that was either meaningful for you, memorable for you, or just a really fun or funny experience? Oh my god, I remember um, we were on the train, I think it was the second day, right? And I am, this, I, I hate this, but this is like, I'm a lifeline New Yorker, right? <laughs> yeah. So there, there are certain rules of the city that go unspoken that I did not realize were rules um, mm. and it, until I saw other people break them. Because <laughs> um, I remember, I think it was Diego, uh, we were getting on a train and it was like half full, but it was, there was a lot of space. And he goes and he sits down and it's this bench that's mostly empty, but there's this one man on the end. And he goes and he sits down in the middle, right next to this man. Oh, no. And I'm looking at them, and I'm like, why did you do that? <laughs> and this man is looking at him and being like, who the hell? Because uns- the unspoken rule is you sit apart from someone. Yeah, you kind of give them some, sp- give them their space. Yeah, yeah, so I'm looking at this, and I'm just laughing because I'm like, there's a complete <laughs> <laughs> Just in the middle of the, of the bench, just yeah. two people sitting next to each other. And Diego's sitting there, and he's like, you know, he's not paying attention. He doesn't know he's being looked at. But yeah. I'm just like, this is so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. What about you, Lumina? It's so hard to pick a favorite because some of them are funny, and the other ones are like, just meaningful mm. and memorable it's so hard to choose you can do two if you want i can do two i think what's so memorable is talking with each other on the trip one day i think it was sunday we are like oh let's take it as like a relatively flexible day because everyone just traveled and we just finished our midterms mm. um and we were just we just had some questions that we just throw into the group and we break people into smaller groups and we're talking about our life. And I just remember I was in the same group with Rania and um, Zoe. And Zoe's from Hawaii, Rania's from Tanzania. And I'm from China and that's like the best conversation we've ever had. Um, we talked about like how migration patterns um, and people coming in and out of the country affected mm-hmm. the place. Yeah. Um, and tourism. Um, how tourists changed a location, mm-hmm. how it you know turned a place, how like profits came in and then culture went out. Something wow. like that. It was it was just really really good conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, funny moments, so many. We were some jokesters. I know, and I don't even know if I I can like entirely share it and translate it to <laughs> it's such an inside joke yeah. i don't know yeah we had we the last night we spent in witten um, was good museum yeah. was good we paid like two dollars for all of us <laughs> really and last yeah. friday night of the of every month the whitney will let you take it to, it's like essentially free mm. um you ever in New York? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I actually will be in New York in the summer. That's yay! good. That's good. Yeah. Um, and we were on the rooftop. We I saw a beautiful city view. Um, and then in the museum, certainly I learned a lot of the stuff for people's personal collection, and it could be stolen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, it's a good night. So, uh, we got good views, lots of jokes, (laughs) (laughs) 
lots of the meaningful conversations. conversations and then also just learning a lot from the ASB trip. That's awesome. I feel like you've sold it to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. So the last question we ask everybody on the podcast is what does sustainability mean to you? And I guess if you want, you can um, answer this question in terms of like in, in with respect to like your trip in terms of environmental sustainability and it, and then include like the racial and class element, or you can just say um, more broadly what sustainability means to you. Good question. I think it looks like a community that is Mm self-sufficient and everybody has what they need which sounds cheesy (laughs) um, but genuinely I think like you want social programming doesn't work if it's not sustainable and then you can't have sustainable habits like planting trees like have like trying to improve air quality all of those things if they're not sustainable and if the community is not equally invested in them because i think ultimately like you want to have like those habits and the infrastructure to be local and self-sustaining um so i think it's a mutual sort of relationship and i think it's it, it it really has to come out of relationships yeah yeah i think for me there's I think about it in two levels like there's the individual level that what I can do what I want to do what sustainability is for me on a daily basis um, and also like what does it look like on a collective level how do we organize people to live sustainably I think um, the first point I think what I'm trying to do is um, maybe not necessarily like always buying the most environmental friendly stuff because I know like I don't right now have the means um, to do that always, but I do have the means to not buy a ton of clothes and throw them out once every few months. Um, mm-hmm. I try to own a thing and own as long as I can yeah. own it. Um, I try to not waste water. <laughs> <laughs> I try to compost when I can, um, try to recycle. I try all the small things that, you know, I can afford on a daily basis. Mm. Um, On a collective level, I think um, it's always, it's always hard because, you know, we know that there are only limited resources that we all have to share. Um, And certainly comes with that is competition and you know, the allocation of environmental benefits yeah. and cost and harm. Mm-hmm. How do we think about it? Like, we have to be aware that, you know, all these good things that we gain, what comes with that are always harm. Um, like, for the water that we drink and that goes into the sink, um, those things are going to flow out and become sewage and go somewhere else. And who is the population will take that? Um, there's always the receiving end of it. Um, and how do we allocate the environmental harm? Who should we? Who should buy all of this? All of these trash that we produce? Mm-hmm. Like these things are 
I think something that I, we all should be aware of and and think about. Um, yeah. There's this like toxic uh, wa toxic waste trade that's happening in the world. A lot of the um, countries that are still developing um, are the countries who will take the waste and because Western countries could pay them a little bit um, and because they're desperate, they'll mm -hmm. certainly take the money. Um, but Noah's, well, the land that we're on can't really speak for themselves and they can't fight back. So mm. it, it, it's just, it has to come from our willingness to yeah. listen and, and yeah. um, our, our, you know, we have to notice the problem. We have to take responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, Samira and Lamona. Yeah, so this you. was uh, the episode on environmental racism and urban planning, the ASB trip that you guys both planned. Thank you so much for coming. I feel like thank I've learned so us. much. Yeah, thank you very, very much. All right. Okay, I think we're good. <laughs>